Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 6th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I was in the west side of town today. I looked around. There was a Jedi. Then there was a Jawa. Then there was a Bugs Bunny type thing. I think it was actually, who's the female bunny from, uh, from that movie? Penelope Bunny? Maybe Babs Bunny? Anyway, she was around. And I said to myself, what the hell is going on here? And then I realized it's Comic-Con. Comic-Con has hit New York. And I was looking at these adults, and in some cases, adults older than I, and I was saying, oh, you poor, poor, sad bastards. But then I knew not to judge, especially of Lola Bunny. It was Lola Bunny. That's who it was. Do you remember Lola Bunny? Yeah, it was Lola Bunny. And I, as I do, try to question my own assumptions. And, you know, if this is fun and you want to dress like a, a Lola Bunny or a Jedi or a Jawa, that's fine. And then as I was engaged in this mental exercise where the best I could do was tell myself not to harshly judge my fellow man, uh, even if they are an Iron Man at the time, two guys, because this is West Side near Madison Square Garden, two guys walk past me wearing uh, Patrick Ewing jerseys. I think one was Ewing and one was Starks. So if you don't know, these are Knicks who are long retired. These are two like 5'10 overweight white guys. And it didn't bat an eye. But really, isn't this just cosplay? Isn't going to a sports stadium in a jersey of a guy who you look nothing like? The Lola Bunny looked more like Lola Bunny than the Patrick Ewing looked like Patrick Ewing. So I'm going to say going to the stadium and dressing up like your heroes, if they are sports figures, that's the original cosplay. And this, of course, got me to thinking about YouTube. What? Why did it get me to thinking about YouTube? Because it's all how you look at it. And I can't tell you how many times I'll put into YouTube or a search engine, but it's really prominent on YouTube. I'll put in a search result and then I'll just get inundated with streams and streams of results that are fake news. And by fake news, I mean the old school original definition, shit that just ain't real. But I will almost be blind to it. Yeah, 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 Russia today. Yeah, 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 Infowars but it will dominate the pages. Now today, YouTube said, oh, we finally become aware of this phenomenon and maybe we'll start doing something about it. But I I was just going about my business, not really thinking about the implications that if you search basic factual items on YouTube, you'll mostly get hit with conspiracy theory. So I went and checked today. And the first thing I did was I put in 9-11, on YouTube. And when you put in 9-11 on YouTube, what you get is um, some top 10 video, 10 disturbing 9-11 facts, and then 9-11 survivors remember, and then a, a history channel thing, and then an NBC news thing, and then a conspiracy thing. Uh, but mostly it's, it's and then Al Jazeera, but it's, and then CNN, but it's mostly factual stuff, different shadings, sources that we know. So that was the control, because this is what I was really trying to test. I put in truth 9-11. And the word truth before 9-11 caused YouTube to spit out this. You still got those 10 disturbing 9-11 facts. 
But you got the watch mojo conspiracy theories. I think this is a Mother Jones thing. Then you got the American Heroes channel asking what are the real motives behind 9-11. Then you got Z News, the biggest secret of 9-11 from Air Force One. Then you got high impact flicks, the 15 disturbing 9-11 facts. Then you got Truther TV. And then you got Russia Today. There it is, Russia Today. Putting truth before something skews these results demonstrably. I put in Russia, Ukraine. And what I got was a Vox video, uh, a Time video, a Now now This World, which is, they, they make videos, but they're mostly factual, or at least they try to be factual. PBS News Hours there. I put in Truth, Russia, Ukraine. <laughs> War in Ukraine, the unreported truth. And then there's a link to uh, some uh, Russia Today tweets. And then Fox News cuts off girl telling the truth about Ukraine. So what I'm saying is for all your search engine reformation, YouTube, the word truth before most factual searches will very much skew the results. The truth might set you free, but on YouTube, it will still set you down a rabbit hole. Today on the show, I will finally get to spiel about tax cuts and percentages and brackets. Been meaning to do this all week. We were overtaken by events, as they say, Las Vegas, a little bit of Puerto Rico. But now I'm free to regale you with tales of tax brackets. You are lucky. But first, she is one of the most vital experts on one of the most vital regions working today. So here now, Masha Gessen on how Putin's Russia came to be. Masha Gessen is a Russian-American nonfiction writer, the author of several books, among them The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Her newest book is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Here's my supposition of this book. You've written so many books on Putin. You're the Putin whisperer. You can explain Putin better than everyone. Explain Putin, people say. And invariably, you will say, well, to understand Putin, you have to understand the whole milieu, where he came from, the country, the culture. So finally, you sat down and you said, all right, I'm explaining the whole shebang. I'm explaining how the USSR became what it became, how it created a guy like Putin, but a society like one that could be uh, run by Putin. Is that about right? That's about right. I mean, I, another way to think about it is that, you know, every couple of years, somebody sits down and says, I'm going to write the Russia book to end all Russia books. <laughs> so I figured, you know, I've been I've been at it for 30 years. It's my turn to write the Russia book to end all Russia books. So you could have started at any point since the Bolshevik revolution or maybe the czars. You chose to start a few years before the downfall of the Soviet Union. Why? What were you trying to do? I mean, you're right. Any starting point is chosen randomly, mm -hmm. right? And because I was I was particularly focused on the concept of totalitarianism, I thought that it made sense to focus on a time when Russia was starting to understand that it was a totalitarian country, when the Soviet Union was starting to understand that it was a totalitarian country. It seems like a no-brainer, right? Yeah. We in the West knew that it was a totalitarian state. Actually, that was a word that was never used. In fact, as a kid growing up in the Soviet Union, I knew that there had been a totalitarian state called Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union was the opposite of Nazi Germany. And to draw a parallel between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union was an act of extreme dissidence and extreme sort of intellectual courage. 
So then that mental shift happened in the mid to late 80s. By 1991, Gorbachev himself was using the word totalitarianism. To describe his own country. To describe the Soviet Union. Hmm. To describe the regime that he felt he was dismantling, turning into something uh, sort of more humane. Because I think that it's impossible for a society to change itself without understanding what it is, right? I mean, yeah. very much the same way as, as a person, you know, sort of who doesn't have a, f- a mental framework to understand, for understanding their own behavior will have a very difficult time changing that behavior. And throughout the book, you detail how the Soviet Union was particularly inept at understanding itself because it quashed the social sciences, for one thing, because anyone who came along that might offer an insight was shuttled into some job for the glory, greater glory of, of people. And you talk about essentially a pollster who was trying to to get into well he was a, he was an academic in other ways trying to get into the character of what is a soviet person and he found out about the time that you're talking about that sovietism was really generationally being redefined yeah this was to me if uh one of the most fascinating stories in the book. So uh, the, the book is structured around seven different people, three of whom are intellectuals, all of whom are trying to sort of learn something that is virtually unlearnable in the Soviet Union because, yeah, the Soviet Union didn't want the social sciences. They were dangerous. So people couldn't learn to be sociologists. They couldn't read books on sociology. Yeah. They couldn't read about Western sociology. They also couldn't study the Soviet Union and then by the late 1980s, uh, Gorbachev and his people realized that they had to know something about the society that they were trying to reform. Because, of course, by killing sociology, they also killed their very own ability to learn anything. And there was an underground school of sociology that they sort of helped bring to the fore. And they told them, OK, go study the people. Tell us what they think. The sociologists had this hypothesis that there was a thing called homo Sovieticus that they could define, the Soviet man. Um, and homo Sovieticus. Homo Sovieticus, and uh, they suggested that the, that the new man existed, that there was a different citizen of totalitarian society that had been created. But their hypothesis was that it was generation, generational because it had, been, it had been 30 years since state terror ended, since Stalinist terror ended. The people who actually had a memory of Stalinist terror were starting to die off. And they thought, well, once they die off, the sort of the people who haven't been so profoundly frightened uh, will be running the country, and Homo Sovieticus will die off, and the institutions that rest on Homo Sovieticus will die off, and the Soviet Union will crumble. And so they set out in, 19, in 1989 to study the society that had never been studied, right? Mm-hmm. So they had to design surveys for people who had never been surveyed. And they confirmed their hypothesis, and they said, yeah, you know, this Homo Sovieticus is dying off, and soon enough the Soviet Union is going to crumble. And sure enough, two years later, the Soviet Union started, uh, comes crashing down. But then when they went back in, ni- in late 1994 to redo the survey, they discovered that things weren't quite as simple as they thought. It wasn't quite as generationally bound. Homo Sovieticus was sort of stable in society. And then when they went back in 1999, they were absolutely horrified. And they said Homo Sovieticus was reproducing. Yeah. So in America, the history has been the young generations are liberal. And they actually, even though there are all these lines about, you know, a conservative's a liberal who's been mugged, or eventually we start off liberal and become conservative. It's true that society has liberalized very much in step with uh, the time, not in the Soviet Union or as it became Russia. Why? What changed the liberalizing impulse that even these pollsters detected back in the late 80s? So one way to look at it is to talk about the trauma 
and you can you can think about it in really simple human terms, right? You wouldn't expect a woman who has been living in an abusive marriage, who is now taken out of, out of that situation, or maybe even not in an abusive marriage, maybe she's been like human trafficked, right? Mm-hmm. She's taken out of that situation, and you wouldn't expect her to go out and start forming healthy relationships the day that she is liberated, because she can't, because she is ill. She is traumatized. She has developed all sorts of psychological habits for coping with a profoundly cruel and dangerous situation. Well, it's kind of the same with societies, as it turns out. And to think that in 1991, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia should have just embraced democracy because we think that's that's the healthy thing for a society to be is unbelievably naive, right? But I mean, I, I, I totally claim that naivete, that I went back to Russia you know, in yeah. the early 90s to, to build democracy. So that's one way to look at it. Um, another way to look at it is just the resilience of Soviet institutions and the fact that the project was never really to destroy those institutions, right? Uh, uh, I thought, and you know, certainly Western observers thought, and I, you know, I, I put myself both in the sort of the Moscow intellectual camp and the Western observer camp, both of those groups thought 1991, the triumph of democracy, the end of the Soviet Union, the complete discreditation of totalitarian society. Um, but to most Russians, it actually looked very different. It looked like a power struggle mm-hmm. between different kinds of politicians. And when Boris Yeltsin, the first president of Russia, won that power struggle, he won the right to claim Soviet institutions and to control them. And his project was not necessarily to raise them to the ground. Right. His project was actually to to reform them, and uh, he was very committed to market economy and to free press, but not committed to reckoning with the past. And finally, um, and I think this is probably the most important uh, thing that I was able to document uh, about the 1990s was just how scary the 1990s was, right? And there's sort of two stories that we hear about the 1990s. One is that it was a time of fledgling democracy, which is true. Mm-hmm. And another was that is that it's a time of collapsing economy and total economic catastrophe for for most Russians, which is not exactly true because um, on the on the face of it, people lived better by the late 1990s than they did in the early 90s. They ate better. There were no they didn't face food shortages. Every single Russian household got a new washing machine during the 1990s. But they also were exposed to the way other people lived, both inside the country and outside the country. So. One of the opportunities they got was to travel abroad, and they would go to a poor country like uh, Turkey or Spain and discover that poor Europeans lived better than rich Soviets. Right. So in the interregnum between the USSR and Putin, the leader was Boris Yeltsin, and there are parallels. So my question is going to be, how much of the blame falls on Yeltsin and his personality or his uh, his thoughts? There's so many parallels between what happened to post-Soviet society and Yeltsin himself. I mean, he was a drunk. He was dissolute. He was extroverted. Uh, He seemed to have, I guess, fine ambitions or a good heart, but he was lacking in execution, it would seem. I don't particularly believe in the great man of history, but how much blame belongs to Yeltsin? Probably a lot of blame belongs to Yeltsin. And if I were to to enumerate his crimes, I'd say crime number one was uh, not being interested in the past. Mm. So saying in 1991, let's just focus on the economy, focus on market reforms and all this uh, sort of dealing with Stalinist terror, et cetera. Let's sleeping dog li- dogs lie. And that basically meant that Russia never had a new story 
Russia sort of never became post-imperial in any meaningful sense of the word. It, it just became a smaller empire, which can only breed resentment. There was nobody who sort of said, okay, we can be different from what we were. We can be good in a different way, right? And so that made it very easy for Putin to come in and say, capitalize on that resentment and promise to make Russia great again. Crime number two is the execution of the Russian parliament. Yeltsin, in October 1993, he had been in conflict with parliament, which he inherited from the Soviet Union. He was at loggerheads with them for a long time. They stonewalled a lot of his reforms. He got fed up and unconstitutionally ordered the parliament disbanded. The parliament barricaded itself in the parliament building, which happens to be called the White House in yes. Russian. Uh, it's actually a white high-rise in central Moscow. And so Yeltsin ordered the White House shelled. And it's impossible to convey just how unimaginable that is. I mean, imagine... I mean, it's it's similar to, I think, what New Yorkers experienced after 9-11. Looking at something in the center of your city that has been destroyed, that is still smoldering after several days, that looks like a decayed tooth right in the center of the city, it happened right here. Except, you know, unlike with 9-11, it wasn't someone else. It wasn't another who did it. It was your president. It was the inside job the truthers are always telling us about. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it was the president. <laughs> yeah. He did it openly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the ultimate way to serve, to, to discredit the democratic project. The story that you're telling is the story of essentially nationalism replacing communism. And it worked really well, better than I think the world ever thought it could. And in quotes, credit to Putin for that, for capitalizing on that. It flourished without being imposed. Um, he saw that that could happen. Was that the only play he had? How do you know? I wouldn't necessarily actually call it nationalism. I try to stay away from that word because, you know, Russia was an empire, right? And still is an empire. Never acknowledged as such. Never acknowledged yeah. as such. But in an empire, nationalism actually tends to be a liberating project. Yeah, yeah. Right? The Azerbaijanis nationalize or the it, Lithuanians do. Yeah, Exactly. And there are some nationalist liberationist movements now inside of Russia. What Putin, Putin's ideology is really imperialist and ultimately it's expansionist which is very different from sort of from pure nationalism. Imperialism is much more dangerous to the country and others because it does demand ultimately expansion and it's much more conducive to kind of totalitarian ways of being than nationalism is. Tell me the role that culture plays in advancing quasi-totalitarianism. Russians aren't being terrorized into behaving, but they see the autocrat as having their values. So what I think, first of all, that Putin has done is I don't think he's, he ever set out to recreate totalitarianism in, in Russia. He set out to plunder yes. and to hold on to power for as long as possible. Uh, and the best term that I know for that is a mafia state, which is which is a term that, that was originated by a Hungarian political scientist named Balint Magyar, who's written a, a wonderful book called The, mafia, the Post-Communist Mafia State in which he describes sort of the way it functions as a family, it functions as a clan, there's a patriarch in the center who distributes money and power. He talks about how you can be born into the family or adopted into the family, but you can never leave the family voluntarily. You can only be kicked out. Yeah. So I think Putin was, you know, the, the signals that he's sending out are mafia state signals. And he, he doubled down on those signals when he was faced with popular protest and he was afraid of losing power. But the society that he's addressing is a society with an experience of totalitarianism that has been passed on from generation to generation. And so 
the habits that kick in or the social institutions that are activated are the institutions of a totalitarian society. Right. So he hasn't actually instituted terror. Right. But Russians are reacting as though he had. Right. Just a little bit of selective law enforcement has the effect of terrorizing most people. Interesting. Masha Gassin is the author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. The president has announced he's about to make a big announcement. Sometimes that whole thing fizzles, like when he was intimating that there better not be tapes rolling during my conversation with Comey. And then they asked him about it. Seem to be hinting that there are recordings of those conversations. I'm not hinting anything. I'll tell you about it over a very short period of time. Okay. He did tell us there was not a thing to it. He just threw it out there. It's called a tease, people. You got to get him coming back after the commercial. Now, Trump has teased, well, he's teased talk show hosts and beauty pageant contestants and Puerto Rican mayors, but teased in the sense of trying to keep people's attention. He has now teased his upcoming decisions on Iran sanctions. The reporting is that Trump will decertify that Iran is complying with the nuclear deal, and then it will be up to Congress to determine what course of action to take. Just like he was light on the details with DACA and let Congress handle it like he never learned any of the details of ACA appeal and he let Congress handle it. He still doesn't have key details of his tax idea to have a framework of a blueprint of a proposal. He just wants to let Congress handle it. CNN describes the Iran decision less as a punt and more as a a ploy. There, Stephen Collison writes of the Trump decision and the Iran deal by handing its fate to lawmakers. He, Trump, would also limit his political exposure to any decision to kill off a pact by U.S. allies. That is leadership for you, huh? Hey, you can't blame me. I punted it to Congress. I guess we could be grateful that he's trading in aggressiveness for passive aggressiveness. But actually, an analysis would reveal that the kind of aggressiveness that he relishes, the conflicts that he wants to weigh in on, those are just the trading of barbs, the lobbing of insults, the punching, the counterpunching. Once you introduce any details about policy, let someone else handle it. And handle it, they won't, has been the case in the 250 plus days since he's been in office. Which brings us to taxes. Did you know this week was supposed to be tax week when the administration embarked on a full court press about taxes? Yes, Las Vegas intervene. Crises do that. The president has shown no discipline in this regard about actually staying on message about anything. Infrastructure week. But remember back to Sunday, a time I like to call Sunday. And we could see there what the White House's strategy was. It was not only to put forth a plan that's lacking in key details. Oh no, that's child's play to have a plan without details. What you've got to do, the next level move, is to use the fact that the plan doesn't have details to use that as the best defense of your plan. Here's Steve Mnuchin on ABC's This Week after being asked by George Stephanopoulos about the Tax Policy Center's estimate that his plan's going to help the rich much more than the middle class. Well, I don't know how the Tax Policy Center can publish those figures since they don't have all the details, including the brackets. People like the Tax Foundation and others have waited, which I think is responsible when we release all the information. But that's on you, isn't it, if you haven't released the details? 
No, we're, 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 we're working with the House and Senate. It's going through committees, and those details are going to be released. And we, we've said that continuously. You know, Stephanopoulos is totally correct. You didn't give the details. You're the ones who are denying the American public the best estimates. Now, over on CNN, Jake Tapper tried to get some facts out of OMB director Mick Mulvaney, who sent up the same flair. Can you tell us what percentage of the tax benefit goes to the people in the top 1%, people uh, who make more than $730,000 a year? No. Uh, in fact, I don't think anybody can. And anybody who says they can is simply lying to you. Why is that? Uh, it's because the bill is not finished yet. Keep in mind, what we introduced this week, Jake, was the framework, was sort of the basic uh, agreement between the White House and House and Senate leadership. What's missing from that, and it's not being hidden, it just doesn't exist yet, are things like details on the deductions details on the brackets. These are things that get done during the ordinary course of business in Congress, which I understand will start in the House this week. So I've seen the criticisms, and all I can tell you is that um, no one um, can make real detailed analysis of the plan yet because it's not finished. As far as these details, that's the sort of thing Congress decides. No, no, it's not. It's set by the leader. I'm going to quote the New York Times. This was after George W. Bush sent his tax cut proposals to Congress. It wasn't the blueprint of a framework, of an idea, of a theory. It was his tax cut proposals. And he did it two weeks, not eight months into his presidency. Here's how the Times reported it. First, they give the tax brackets as currently existed. And then they said, under the plan, meaning the Bush plan, the lowest bracket would be 10% for single payers earning up to 6000 a year or married payers earning up 12,000. The highest rate would be 33% with single payers earning more than $136,750 and married taxpayers $166,500. In other words, every bracket had a number associated with it. It was a plan. You could vote on that plan. You didn't have to say yes, but there were details. And those details allowed for, for instance, then Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott to hold a press conference the very next day where he unveiled a fun fact. The average benefit of this will be $1,600 for a family of four with uh, the, uh, just one member of the family uh, working. It's tangible. It's possible because you had actual brackets and actual figures. Within a week of the actual tax proposal, then-Secretary of Treasury Paul O'Neill was on Capitol Hill citing real figures based on the real numbers in his plan. Uh, well, at the moment, uh, the highest income group is paying uh, 65 or 66 percent of the total federal income tax. And under the president's proposal, it would be 66 or 67 percent. Look, there are, there are ways to argue with the numbers. Uh, there's always some speculation baked into these numbers. You never know where the economy is going to go, how tax cuts are going to go, if Osama bin Laden plans to attack America. It's a projection, but it was a projection based on real numbers, real numbers in the real plan. And I spared you a clip of Ari Fleischer in a White House briefing the day after the plan was introduced. But he, too, used real numbers with real dollar amounts. And then he was talking about the real amount of money in people's pockets. It seems that this current White House would rather duck out of the responsibilities of government in favor of just lambasting anyone who tries to come up with tangible figures. So with this legislation, with no real numbers, but an eagerness to yell at anyone who points out, hey, there are no real numbers here, they've just ducked out of all the responsibility of governance. It's recuse and accuse. Remember repeal and replace? Let's see if this legislation experiences a similar fate to that. 
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson enjoys watching old Captain and Tennille concert footage. But a YouTube search for true Captain and Tennille reveals that the captain was only a lieutenant. Muskrat love? No. Stolen glory. Just producer Dan Schrader was YouTubing Tyra Banks' most famous meltdown. But true Tyra Banks revealed Tyra's very provocative opinions about juice boxes and yogurt. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but search for true executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Lots of suggestions to Sora's funded false flag operation. The gist. Search for true gist. You'll find the Nigerian. May have a claim to the principality. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>